everyone. My name is Rick Schutte. I am hosting tonight Coffee with Jesus for my good friend Todd Ubele. And I know that for longtime listeners, you probably know that Coffee with Jesus covers a wide gamut of topics having to do with Christianity and sometimes even outside of Christianity. I did I did this about a, a year ago for Todd on fly fishing, so he, he will stretch the envelope sometimes. Tonight we are going to take this conversation to a place that maybe some people might feel a little bit uncomfortable. I hope not. I feel very strongly about it. And I'm joined here by Don Dawson, who is the husband of a pastor at our church, uh, Eastminster Presbyterian Church in Indio Atlantic, Florida. So, Don, welcome. Hi there. And, uh, I know that we, leading up to this coming on air here, we've had some great conversations. And the first thing I've decided I have to tell people before we start here is the name of the podcast is Coffee with Jesus, not Coffee with St. Paul or Paul. I think I speak for Don when when I say I am a, a very firm follower and believer in the teachings of Jesus of the gospel. But we're going to be discussing a topic tonight called Cheap Grace. And uh, it's something that the first time I ever heard it, I heard it from you, as a matter of fact. And will you kind of give me a summary of what you think think of as what, what we mean by cheap grace? Well, cheap grace is basically, uh, the term itself comes from uh, the famous pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who gave his life during World War II for having the audacity to criticize the Nazis, who had co-opted the church to sort of do its business. Sort of like, you know, we, we talk about uh, the evils of fascism, and fascism is usually where they, you start talking about, you know, co-opting businesses and the economy into the, the militaristic gains of, of empire. But in this case, they were grabbing out of the church as well. So it was a whole other level of, of evil and, uh-huh. and uh, twisting things. Bonhoeffer couldn't sit right with it. He, uh, he had a real rough conscience over the whole thing and started working with the resistance eventually lost his life for it. But one of the concepts that he wrote about with it was the idea of this cheap grace. He was used to a lot of discussion about things. Paul, for example, in one of the epistles talks about like, you know, if if grace is there for us, maybe we should sin more boldly so we can experience more grace. Mm -hmm. Bonhoeffer recognized that and he saw what was going on within the church in Germany and, and really within just humanity in general, just specifically, he was seeing it there in his local area there. So he said that cheap grace is basically the idea of, of grace that we give to ourselves. Mm-hmm. Grace that is with, without much cost. Mm-hmm. Um, we think of grace, you know, quite often you'll hear people, especially from the evangelical world, they'll, they'll say grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. That's kind of the you know the, a great way of thinking of things as an acronym. Uh, it's more to it than that. Really, sure. it's about God's generosity. That's why Jesus came in the first place. But the cheap grace is the idea that we look at the great effort that God went through to bring the Messiah to earth, to bring these teachings about the kingdom mm-hmm. of God, and we look at it and we kind of like, eh, okay, whatever, and we just sort of move on. We don't take the morality of it seriously. Jesus wasn't really a morality teacher. He was more of a a lifestyle teacher. He was getting more into the ideas of how do you live your life where you're really making a difference, where you're you're not taking people for granted, Mm -hmm. especially the little people in the world, uh, the people that everybody else wants to forget. So the cheap grace is all about the idea that, you know, of 
taking people for granted mm-hmm. uh, and, and giving yourself a break for it. Aren't I great? Yeah, this is, this is wonderful. Well, and we're going to specifically be discussing tonight the Beatitudes. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the things that I, I feel very strongly about is whenever I hear the arguments about putting the Ten Commandments up in public places, I don't have it done. I don't have a problem in the world with it. But right next to the Ten Commandments should be the Beatitudes. Absolutely. If you're going to put the Ten Commandments up telling us what thou shalt not do, then how about putting the Beatitudes up and telling us what we are blessed for doing? Yes. You know, and I, I really feel sometimes, though, that that would not sit well with a lot of people. Mm-hmm. They don't want to see. They, they want to be able to read the Ten Commandments and say, see, that guy over there, it says right here, he shouldn't be doing that. Yeah. You know, never mind what I should or shouldn't be doing. But I really feel strong. That's another topic for another day. Um, but, uh, yeah, go ahead. Put the Ten Commandments up. Mm-hmm. Put them everywhere. But put the Beatitudes everywhere you see them. Exactly. Uh, to remind us of the way we should be acting. It's not just the way we shouldn't be acting. Well, so. the irony of things, too, is, you know, when, when Jesus was asked what's the most important commandment, he didn't quote any of those ten. No, no. no he, he, he gave the two that were that pretty much sum it all up. Mm-hmm. You know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's not a New Testament idea. That mm-hmm. came right out of the Old Testament, right there with all the stuff that Moses was giving. Mm-hmm. So uh, it had been familiar for the Jews for generations. So he he wasn't telling this guy anything he didn't already know. Yeah, he was just telling something he didn't want to hear. Didn't want to hear exactly. Yeah. And you know, I, I've had uh, I've had people talk to me about salvation. We all have. I mean, somebody comes to the door. You know, I was in a in a gas station one time waiting to pick up my son or something, and a gentleman there started asking me whether I was saved. And, yeah, and I, my answer was, yes, Good Friday, 33 A.D., you know, and and he started talking about salvation. And I, did, I didn't want to get into it with him, but I, I really, the one question I would have had, had I decided to, was, well, what does salvation mean to you? And I think we could ask 10 different people, to, you know, what, what the word salvation and the, the idea of salvation means to them and come up with 10 different answers. You know, and for me, when whenever somebody says, you know, well, the salvation of the cross and the and the blood of the cross and the blood of Jesus on the cross, wonderful. Thank God we're all saved, or you know, it's all been opened to us because of that. But now the question comes up: Okay, now what? Not so what, but now what? Right. And we and I really feel we there's too many people that act as if. Well, we, we just need to proclaim it on, from the mountaintops. What is that doing? Right. What is proclaiming? Jesus proclaimed it from the cross. What, what right. is proclaiming it from the mountaintops going to do? Well, it's, it's kind of more about more hype than substance in a yeah. sense. If you think about it, a lot of those same sort of folks have been raised in a tradition where it's all about having the best testimony. People don't want to hear in those circumstances about like, you know, the person who grew up in the church and has always been a Christian and taken that stuff seriously. They want to hear about somebody who's been, you know, the worst of the worst yes. and how they how they had this Damascus Road experience. Mm-hmm. They found Jesus and suddenly everything's changed. Unfortunately, it's kind of like a voyeuristic thing. And it's that it, there again, it's it's almost like the cheap grace thing, because it's like there's this overt focus on. On sort of like this uh, consumerist mindset with it that you know it's it's not worth anything unless it's really really extreme. Mm-hmm. 
Well, we have some translations here. I'm going to take just a moment, particularly what we want to focus. I, I'll let the re- I'll assume that the readers can look up Matthew five, three through through eleven, and read the Beatitudes. But the one we want to focus on for this discussion, Don, is number six. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. I'm going to read several different translations because I find it interesting that some of the words are are changed. God blesses those who hunger and thirst for justice, for they will be satisfied. Now that comes from the New Living Translation. That's Matthew 5, verse 6. And I'll read it again. God blesses those who hunger and thirst for justice, for they shall be satisfied. The King James Version, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. New Revised Standard Version, which is the version that uh, Don and I are both uh, PCUSA Presbyterians, by the way. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Almost exactly the same as the King James Version. And one more I'll read, and that is, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for justice, for they will be filled. So what we have is a, a kind of a juxtaposition between righteousness and justice, but both of them seems to me have to do with right actions toward other people and right action, right, right sense in our heart toward doing, doing good for God. You feel free to disagree with that if that's oversimplistic. I know that we had the discussion too. You know, at what point are we getting into, you know, faith without works is dead. By the way, I will admit that's my favorite verse in the Bible. Oh, yeah. Favorite verse in the Bible. Faith without works is dead. Martin Luther wanted to throw the book of James out completely. I know it's not a Protestant thing to go there, but I just, I cannot have, I cannot exercise faith without feeling as if I have to help usher in the kingdom of God as Jesus explained it in the, in the Beatitudes. So. Well, the book of James, um, it echoes a lot of the thoughts that are all through the Proverbs of Solomon. So uh, it's definitely worth reading, mm-hmm. you know, and, and it has good things to say. I mean, realistically, we can we can talk to a blue in the face, but if we're not doing anything about yep. what we're talking about. It's just that. It's it's hot air. Yeah. As I, as I so. said, when somebody says, well, you know, salvation, and I, I, I watched, I've flipped through the channels and I watch various televangelists and, you know, God bless them for what they're doing and what they're what they're trying to do. But once in a while, I'll watch them, and they're hopping all over the stage talking about I'm forgiven, and, and, you know, everything I do, I'm forgiven, I'm forgiven. You know, I think repentance comes to a little bit higher cost than just saying I'm forgiven. Yes. Uh, we, and that's where righteousness comes in. So let me, let me get into some definitions here. The Baker Encyclopedia of the Bible defines righteousness as conformity to a certain set of expectations which vary from role to role righteousness is fulfillment of the expectations fulfillment that's an action word right there you must fulfill the expectations in any relationship whether with god or other people it is applicable at all levels of society and is relevant to every area of life therefore righteousness denotes the fulfilled expectations in relationships between man and wife, parents and children, fellow citizens, employer and employee, merchant and customers, ruler and citizens, and God and man. So 
To be righteous then, as I understand by this definition, to be righteous, you don't just get to say, I'm fulfilling, I, I, I am fulfilling what my wife expects of me. You actually have to pick up the dish towel and dry the dishes. Yeah. You actually have to strip the bed and wash the sheets once in a while. There are things you must do to fulfill expectations. Yeah. Uh, you don't just get to sit there and, and claim, well, she married me, therefore she's fulfilled and I'm and I'm and I'm fulfilling her expectations. So And then if you do think that you'll be you'll be very quickly corrected. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you will. Because you will. relationships don't work that way. No, and, and nor should they work that way. Why would they work that way any different with God? Well exactly uh, right. You know, um and I, I I think some people do think, however, unfortunately, that well God changed all that. God you know, it's, no, God never made this a one way street, in my opinion. Right. God never made it a one way street. Uh, you know, right from the beginning, you know, with his covenant with the Jews, there were expectations to be met. 613 of them, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Uh, so, and, and Jesus didn't come to set aside the law, mm-hmm. you know. So, and then the, the a Tyndale Bible Dictionary defines righteousness as the establishment of a right relationship primarily between God and people, secondarily between people themselves. Righteousness is the fulfillment of just expectations in any relationship, whether with God or other people. In other words, there's that word fulfillment again, and, and you have to, to fulfill something, it, it's an action verb. It, it's a, you, you, you take action to meet an expectation. Right, it's so, an expectation that you're not just gonna say that you're right, it's that you're gonna behave that way too. Yeah, exactly so. Yeah. So, so in today's world, let's talk about righteousness and justice because I mean I'm going to use them both I don't think they're interchangeable because justice is different and I'll get into that in a minute but let's focus on righteousness how are we in what ways can we be and and be more fulfilling in our relationship Uh, if we just look at number six blessed uh, God blesses those who hunger and thirst for justice and for for, uh, righteousness for they will be satisfied are we as a society right now, are we as individuals, how are we failing or how are we meeting that expectation? I think it depends on the, on the culture, the location, the, the circumstances, but I think that by and large we do tend to get complacent. Um, we don't have that, that craving, that visceral craving that hunger and thirst sort of suggests. Really, if you think about it, this is, this is where you, you just can't be satisfied. You can't sit still until something's done about it. There's very little in, in life, I think, that a lot of us could, could really claim to have that kind of level of passion for. Mm-hmm. Unless it's like maybe for our own children or something. And I can't yep. even say that for sure for everybody. So I think that's, uh, that's something we really have to kind of ponder for ourselves is what is it that we hunger and thirst for? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I also think about like uh, for at least our current American culture where we have this overwhelming trend toward libertarianism my liberties yes you know, yeah. not yours mine i see a trend toward thinking like uh, like what you get in plato's republic the platonic idea of justice which was basically that everybody just minds their own business mm-hmm. and uh you can't be looking out for righteousness for other people especially not for you know as we say in christian circles the least of these unless we're uh, unless we we actually do mind other people's mm-hmm. business not to control them, but just to care enough to actually say something. But aren't we so very good at 
you know, both sides of the political aisle, all across the spectrum, were so very good at pointing out just how evil the other side is and oh, how yeah. unrighteous they are. And and as soon as you're saying, as soon as you say, you know, that that that's unjust, that's unrighteous, or you know, you don't you don't have God in your heart, well, that's kind of like saying I do. Mm-hmm. You know, and and all of us, uh, you know, all of us need to look look deeper at ourselves. But you had an interesting observation before we came on air too about the Gospel of Matthew in general. That I think could you reiterate uh, re- or sure. restate that? All right. So uh, the Gospel of Matthew, it's of course the first gospel. Mm-hmm. It's the longest gospel, but it is like all the other gospels written toward a particular audience. The structure of the gospel itself is not really something you can take in a completely um, sequential format, like you would think about, like you know, reading a narrative or a story. Like, for example, if you're reading a novel today, you might say, okay, you have starting here and ending there, and everything in between is basically in order, with, maybe with the exception of a few flashbacks. But you, you kind of figure that out as you go. The Gospel of Matthew is structured in a different format. It's that. Uh, what they would call the ancient Near East mythological format. It's back in those days uh, when you were telling a story, especially about somebody who is larger than life, you you really wanted to try and establish their credentials. And so in this case, uh, if you read through the Gospel of Matthew, the story kind of echoes the story of Moses. You know, Mm -hmm. you look at some of the patterns that are there, you know, that being uh, out in the desert, being... uh, um, having been a refugee, all these sure. kinds of things. They're all very echoed of Moses, and so kind of sort of borrowing some of his street cred for the Jews. But what what the, uh, the mythological structure does specifically related to this is it's structured so that a story or a concept that's introduced at the beginning of the book is echoed with kind of like a, a, a flip kind of theme at the at the end of the book, looking at things from a different perspective so that you wind up with like a, you're kind of getting the point counterpoint and uh, it's kind of layered. So you can kind of work your way out from the very beginning into the, you know, all the way back in toward the center and basically loosely structured. What that means is if you're looking at the Beatitudes, the flip side of them in, at the other end of Matthew is the, the parable of the sheep and the goats at the end of Matthew 25. And the theme there. If you, you had to put it in a nutshell, is basically, you know, if you've done it for the least of these, you've done it for me, speaking, mm-hmm. you know, Jesus speaking. And so uh, that puts a different emphasis on what we're seeing here with the Beatitudes. If you're hungering and thirsting for righteousness sake, you'll be filled. This is where it's an example of where Jesus was kind of telling the people there that, as his audience that, the people that you usually think of as being kind of like the losers, that you know, the least successful, the people who are like they're, they're too boring to pay attention yeah. to. These are the people that in the end are going to be uh, going to be exalted as being really excellent examples of godliness because they actually were paying attention to the least of these, and you know, and they, so so when you're when you're thinking about Jesus emphasizing right at the beginning of things, here's the things that you should be doing, the attitudes that you should be having. And then at at the end of things, the one and only story that we have from Jesus talking about what's going to happen on Judgment Day, everything else comes from Paul and everybody else, but that one and only story from Jesus about what final judgment's going to look like, it's all about that. It's all Uh about what did you do for the least of these. 
Okay. Well, you know, that, that leads us into the next topic of discussion, and then that is we'll, we'll get into justice. But I think we'll save that for next time. Yeah. Uh, this has been a great, great conversation about righteousness, and we will continue our discussion of the Beatitudes with a slant toward uh, the justice of God when we come back next time. So thank you very much, Don. Thanks.